even in a big city like Stockholm, you know, people don't really know their neighbors. But this would change if you know you could meet at the neighborhood level or the street level more often. If you could have common projects together, we talk a lot about ecology this day and an environment and how to actually find solution. Maybe the solution is not global but local, and I think it's the same for banking. In order to avoid those computer algorithms that really leave behind the weakest and the poorest of us, we should perhaps refocus on the human behind those numbers. Welcome to Escas Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. My name is Nathalie von Delier, and in this episode, I talk to Elise Demenier-Reutersvad, Associate Professor of Economic History at Stockholm University and Pro Futura Scientia Fellow here at SCAS. At the moment, Elise Demenier-Reutersvad is at the Robert Schumann Center for Advanced Study, which is situated at the European University Institute in Florence, Italy. She was in residence at SCAS in the academic year of 2015-16 and also during the spring of 2017. And in this episode, we will hear more about her ongoing book project with the working title Banking Before Banks, Credit and Debt in Pre-Industrial France. And this is the first episode within our theme Infrastructures. Very welcome to SCAS Talks, Elise. Would you like to say a few words about yourself? Well, thank you very much, Natalie, and thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be talking about my research this morning. So I'm a social and economic historian, but I would define myself more as a social scientist, and I think we will have time to talk about this today. My research concerns early financial markets and more generally financial markets. Very interesting. So you already said very broadly your research is about financial markets. Where does this research interest come from? How much time do you have? <laughs> uh, it's a, a bit of a long story. Many, many years ago, when I was a student at the Université de Strasbourg in France, I had this fantastic teacher. His name was Jean-Michel Beller. He is uh, known for being a historian of Alsace and more particularly a historian of farmers, peasants. So his specialty was um, peasant studies and he was very inspiring. It was very fascinating to sit in his class. He actually wrote a very big book, 3,000 pages about the history of Alsatian peasants. And I was really much uh, in awe of his work. But when I read his book, 3,000 pages, only two pages were dedicated to women in rural society. And I thought, oh, this is too bad. And 3,000 pages and you only have 50% of the population represented in the book. So I decided to write my own dissertation on female peasants. And when I was doing this, I was going to the archives and women are not exactly invisible in the documents, but they are not visible either. So you really have to look everywhere to find them. 
And that's what I did. And while looking for them, I realized that credit was pretty much everywhere. It was in every litigation, transaction, and even conversation people had back then. So I thought, well, this is really something. I should do something about that. And I should also mention that my interest is not so much in early financial markets, so 16th, 17th century markets, how they worked, but more in, in people. I'm interested in men and women experiences. And that's how actually I could connect my work on female peasants and financial markets. So that's a, a bit of, of a long story, but the interest really started in my college years. And later I did a, a dissertation in the US at Purdue University. And it happened to be at the same time as the 2008 crisis, which if you recall, the subprime crisis was very much a, it's a problem of credit, credit allocation and how people could not really afford the loan they subscribed to for their real estate investment. So I was there at the same time and I saw the crisis unfolded and I thought, wow, this is really like, it connects both the past and the, the present. That sounds very exciting that um, you could see things unfold in real time that you were actually studying, studying historically also. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the 2008 crisis was very much a credit crisis. And I thought you had all those people who subscribe a loan a toxic loan and their interest rates, just about the floating interest rate just went up the, to the roof and they couldn't repay anymore. And what happened is basically those people had nothing to do with, with the stock market and the speculation and they couldn't understand why they would lose their, their house as a home. And I thought, well, this, this kind of problem of issue would not have happened in the past. Because back then the system was, was different. In, in a world before banks, you would not find that kind of problem. But uh, I think we can perhaps talk about this uh, later on. Yes, we will get back to this. But before we go into those details, I would really like to ask you about the term human economy. What does that entail? That's a good question. So human economy is one of my latest interests. So, as I said, I consider myself a social scientist and perhaps not just a historian because I like to work at the intersection of different fields, anthropology, sociology, economics, etc. Human economy is an idea. It's an interdisciplinary field of research dedicated especially to the observation and analysis of people's experiences in terms of economic needs and economic experience. So the main idea is to offer a complement to traditional economics. It's to offer innovative solutions coming from other fields than economics. I mentioned the 2008 crisis, and during the crisis, on the media, on the television, in newspaper, you had all those economics who came and talked about GDP, growth, and interest rates, numbers. And I wondered, but where are the people behind all of this? And so human economy is trying to put people back into the story, into what we do in terms of research, and to offer 
solutions for them. So the idea is, at the end, to have policy-driven solutions by putting together a group of people who perhaps have something to say. I'm thinking about historians, philosophers, etc., and who could really bring something new to the table. So it's not like economists don't have the tools, but I think diversity could help because if we could have food poverty by now just with you know traditional economics, then we would have done that. So the idea is really, what can we do? What can we contribute with? And you have also founded the Human Economy Lab at uh, Stockholm University. Yeah, because human economy is just, it's basically an idea. Anthropologist Keith Hart was the first one really to develop this at the University of Pretoria. And it's really much an idea that is in utero right now. And it's not exactly something you find in, in universities yet. So I've created this uh, human economy lab with people from different disciplines. We're trying to see how we can contribute and to create perhaps a framework for contributing to the debate, to the conversation with economists. We're hoping to be joined by people who are interested in, in this idea in the future. It takes time and we will see how this will lead us. Yeah, I really like the idea of creating this research environment where you can meet and talk and do things together. That's the idea that researchers should be useful to their community. I think this is what perhaps is driving me very much, this idea of being useful, making a difference to help people. And it's difficult when you are an historian because you work on people who are already dead. And it's a bit frustrating because, you know, what is my contribution as a researcher? You have a lot of skills, you are highly educated, and you should be contributing more to the society. So that's really the idea behind the Human Economy Lab a way for researchers and scientists to be useful to their community. So currently you're working on a book with a working title, if I've understood it correctly, Banking Before Banks, Credit and Debt in Pre-Industrial France. So can you tell us a little more about this whole project? Yes. So the book is about the world of women and men and their relationship with credit and debt, and the practices of uh, lending and borrowing. So basically, I'm looking at the period 16th, 17th, and 18th century, and I'm looking at how people landed and borrowed money before the advent of banks, or before banks existed. So you have this system of peer-to-peer -peer lending in place, and I'm very much interested in examining how this peer-to-peer -peer lending system worked, not only in terms of economic mechanisms, but also in terms of social interaction between people. As I mentioned, credit was pretty much everywhere. It was so important, not just in terms of uh, economics, but in terms of social relation. So today, for instance, in the Western world, most people looking for a loan are likely turn to their banks. There is almost no other option available to finance either consumption or goods or to buy a house, for instance, to buy a car. 
you have to go to a bank, especially when you don't have the necessary capital available, not enough savings. And that's the case, I think, of most of us when we want to buy a house. But you have to go to the bank. But in the pre-industrial past, before banks existed, a variety of credit channels existed. So you had different circuits where people could borrow. They could borrow from their family, from their neighbors, from other institutions, such as the state or the church. The church was one of the biggest loan provider in pre-industrial Europe, which could be a bit surprising since they have this history with usury. But they managed to circumvent those rules and create their own financial tools to extend loan to people. So the church was a very big lender. So that's what the book is about. It's about ordinary people and their life, their experience in terms of credit and debt and the social interaction. Because in the past, before the advent of banks, the economic was very much embedded into the social fabric of communities. So you cannot really talk about debt and credit and leave out people in this. I'm not interested in talking about interest rates or you know, terms of agreement, type of contracts, all of this. I mean, it is in the book, but I'm interested in the people behind. And that's the most important thing for me, those ordinary peasants. When you did this research, how did you do it? I mean, how did you find all this information about how people did before in the earlier days, in the pre-industrial time? Well, it's a little bit like a detective work. So you have to dig in the archives. And there is a lot of materials. Credit was everywhere. So it wasn't really difficult to find the material. You have a lot of loan registers that have survived from a lot of different places from the church, from the notary. You also have something called probate inventories. Those are one of my favorite sources to look at. A probate inventory is basically a list of assets, belongings, left by someone who's just died. And in this list, you can find a list of debtors and creditors. So you really have a picture of household budget at time T. Those sources are fascinating because you really enter into people's house, into people's daily life, basically. And you realize how many small debts they had. Basically, everything they consume was bought and purchased on credit. So that was really not difficult to find the material for this book. It was pretty much, it was more difficult to stop looking because there were so many things that they could have gone on for, for a very long time. I had actually to limit myself with this book because at first I wanted to write more about different regions in Europe, but I realized it's impossible. It would have been too much material. So that would be for the second one. But for this one, the focus is on France and especially on Alsace in a very small region. Despite the fact that it focuses on a small area, the, I think the results are applicable pretty much to elsewhere in Western Europe at the time. Did you make any surprising findings when you were looking at the material? In terms of results, there were at least four main surprising discoveries, so to speak. The first one 
as I mentioned, is a ubiquity of credit. Credit was absolutely everywhere. It governed both the economic life and the social life of people. So that's definitely a, a big thing. The second finding concerns the practices of lending. Moral and social norms prevailed very much in this peer-to-peer lending system, especially with a tight-knit society. So it means that loans were flexible because people could talk to one another. They could negotiate, and more importantly, they could renegotiate the terms of their agreement. And it's something that perhaps we've lost today. Try to go to the bank and renegotiate your mortgage. You know, it might be difficult and you will have perhaps a very little margin to do so. So it's very much the norms of cooperation, solidarity, reciprocity and fairness that prevailed. And in fact, the relationship created by credit were very strong and it created quasi-queenship between people. But I think the most important that we should uh, remember is the flexibility of those agreements. I think that really made things easier because if you have a flexibility in the system, then predatory lending was almost absent. Now, as this being said, we should not be fooled by the romantic flavor of those exchanges. People in small communities did argue there were a lot of conflicts and things were not so so easy. But at the end of the day, the moral norms of cooperation and solidarity prevailed very much. I think the third finding concerns women. We have this idea that in the past, in the early modern past, women didn't have a lot of power and they were under the patriarchal rule But when we look at the credit market in small communities, we find women everywhere as borrowers, but also as creditors. And here you have a very interesting question. If a woman can extend loans to people in her community, what does it mean about her power? What does it mean in terms of empowerment? Does she gain something by doing so? And I believe so. I believe the patriarchal model that we have in mind, that women were submissive and had to, you know, listen to their husband, stay at home, you know, this, this picture, I think it, it's wrong. My book very much picture women have been very active and dynamic in money issue. That was also surprising. And finally, I think the fourth main important finding in the book is the changes that we observe at the very end of the 18th century. You have new actors coming in those local credit markets and they start to invest their money. Those external actors are the new civil servants, small civil servants, little judges, notaries, lawyers. Those people have accumulated enough savings to make investments, but they didn't turn to the land, the traditional investment that you could you could have, but they decided to turn to the credit market. Land was, was too expensive, so it was better to invest in the credit market. 
they offer more liquidity and it was easier for those people. So they, they started to do so. But the problem is because they were not really part of the community, they lended money then to the farmers and they asked for repayment. So those new actors asked for repayment and sued people who didn't repay in time. So they introduced more inflexibility. And this is where problems started. And this is a, perhaps very much the, the system we are in today, a little bit more inflexible, where you cannot really renegotiate the terms of your loan. So there was definitely a shift towards the end of the 18th century from everyday communism, as David Graeber, the anthropologist, has labeled this, this moment, to something that he called impersonal arithmetic. And this is very much where we are today. Yeah, and talking about impersonal, I'm thinking that nowadays, I mean, you never really go into a bank anyway. No, you don't, right? I mean, lots of decisions are taken by computers and algorithms, so. Oh, exactly. They are now closing local branches in small uh, villages or small towns, and it's very difficult to, to go and meet someone in person. If you want a loan, they enter your data into a computer and an algorithm decides if you are eligible or not. And it can create a, a lot of problems, especially in a country like the US where you have credit score that is just a number attributed to you. But so what if you had a problem and what if you missed that bill that you didn't pay on time? You know, your credit score is, is affected. If you live in an area where the zip code means that it's a poor area, for instance, or a dangerous area, then you are not eligible or you would pay more for a loan because there is more risk for the bank. And all of this has nothing to do with you as a person. You barely have to say that you're a good person, that you will repay on time, that you work very hard, you're very dedicated. That doesn't matter. So from these findings that you have made and how things were done before this whole system was introduced um, at the end of the 18th century, as you said, what can we learn from that and apply to present day? That's a $1 million question, I guess. Well, I think, as I said, you know, the, the flexibility issue is perhaps the biggest one. Things can be flexible only if people have some skin in the game. Meaning that if you know who you are talking to, and if you know there are circumstances, then that flexibility is introduced. We talked a little bit about the 2008 crisis. One of the problems with this crisis was the intermediation, the number of actors between someone who would take a loan and the final decision. And... The more actors you have, the more intermediaries you have, the less skin in the game you have. And people don't really care anymore. So I think in order to reintroduce this kind of personal contact and avoid impersonal arithmetic, we should perhaps rethink the way we live together. And it is, of course, a much bigger issue. But think about small communities where people, you know, talk to one another, they know one another, it is possible to reintroduce cooperatives, for instance, for better banking system. So that's something that we could do. It is possible, I believe, to refocus on our small communities here and there. 
even in a big city like Stockholm, you know, people don't really know their neighbors. But this would change if you know you could meet at the neighborhood level or the street level more often. If you could have common projects together, we talk a lot about ecology, this day and an environment, and how to actually find solution. Maybe the solution is not global but local. And I think it's the same for banking. In order to avoid those computer algorithms that really leave behind the weakest and the poorest of us, we should perhaps refocus on the human behind those numbers. Are there any examples of that out in the real world of these small communities um, who are managing their finances and banking? Yeah, well, actually, there are plenty of examples if you look beyond the Western world. I've been involved in a project in South Africa, and there they have a system called Stockwell. So basically, a Stockwell is a small group of people who meet on monthly or weekly basis, and they save money together. And they save money in a common pot, and it is possible for their member to also borrow this money. It is a system that creates more than an economic experience. It's the system for social activities, a social bond between people. And this we observe has really much resisted the establishment of banks in South Africa. The system of Stockville has persisted and still exists today. And even for people who are in the banking system and who could borrow money at the bank, still, there are still members of those Stockville because they said that it works very well. So we've been there to interview them and we ask them, so why do you keep the system in place? You know, you can have loans at the bank, you know, you have a credit card, you know, all these things. So why do you still continue this, this old tradition? And they all reply the same thing. They said it's important for the community and it's important for the social relation between people. This link is very important for them in terms of empathy and solidarity and reciprocity. Is this also a system that's better for smaller loans? Yes, this is definitely a system that is better for small communities. It's not a system for a global connected world. It's, it works better for small villages or small associations of people, people who have something in common. But if we think about the people we that we, we know and our social cycles and network, it is possible to really rethink the meaning of communities, even in a global world. I'm also thinking about the role of women there that you mentioned before, that women had a bigger role in these financial markets. Can you see this also in the small communities who trade with the Stockwell? Yeah, definitely. The Stockwell in South Africa is 90% women. Why is that so? It's because women in South Africa are the one who manage a household budget. And they use a stockwell in order to buy groceries or to save enough to buy household appliances. There are some groups now that even uh, save enough money to build houses. And when they have enough money to buy what is needed, the material, they actually do it together. So they build the house together, all those women coming together. So it's really like gives you a sense of solidarity, but also 
empowerment for those women because then they have a very important role, not just for the household, but also for their community. And I think this should not be taken away from them. So if you introduce regulation, for instance, then that would disappear and women would suffer from from this. It sounds almost like a small revolution. (laughs) Well, there are many things we could do and change for a better future, especially when it comes to banking and finances. After the 2008 crisis, we saw what kind of problem we had but the system was, hasn't been fixed. So it means, you know, in a few years, this can happen again. And it will probably happen. As a prolongation of your work, you told me that you have started to think about moral economy. And what do you mean by this term, moral economy? I think we have an idea by now, but if you could just explain. So moral economy is a set of norms that emphasize the importance of fairness, reciprocity, and solidarity. It's usually what you find in small communities, especially in the past. It has pretty much disappeared today. You don't find that kind of uh, moral economy. Now we have an economy that is based on Profit, we talk about risk aversion, all those things. In the past, for instance, I'll give you an example. In small communities, people could lend money to their neighbors, neighbors that were in need, urgent need of, of funds, even if the lender didn't have, you know, was a little bit short on cash. It didn't matter. The idea was to help the neighbor in need. And that means giving a fair deal to that person without thinking about profit that much. So that's the idea of a moral economy. Today, moral economy has pretty much disappeared. So I'm very interested in studying where it has persisted in the world. Like we talk about South Africa, for instance. So there you still have some signs of moral economy here and there, and especially in the Stockwell system. So I'm interested in how this has changed over time and how we can actually think about retrieving some of these norms. So how can we do it? Do you have any idea? <laughs> well, no, as I mentioned, I think the focus on small communities, trying to refocus on, on the people, trying to to talk about those things with people at the heart of communities. So when we went to South Africa, I went there to interview women in Stockwell because I was interested in the comparison between the financial past, between what happened in early modern France and what is going on in South Africa today. And when I talked to them, I realized that the peer-to-peer lending in pre-industrial Europe was pretty much the same as what they were doing in today's South Africa. So that was very interesting on many levels. And I wonder why it had disappeared in our Western world and why it had persisted in South Africa. And I think part of the answer lies in the meaning of communities and how they define communities there. And they're important also. You mentioned women, how women are integrated into the system. 
And they are very much in South Africa resisting banking because they don't really trust the system. They have a long history of being excluded, especially if you think about the, the black community during the apartheid. So they don't really trust the bank. They trust one another more. And I thought this idea of, of trust between people was interesting. And that's perhaps what we've lost. I'm not sure how to retrieve this. One idea would be cooperatives. As you, you may know, in the 19th century in Germany, a lot of cooperatives were established. So a group of people with a common profession or interest, especially farmers, would come together and create a cooperative that could lend money to its members. And that is something perhaps to explore. So what is your role and also responsibility as a researcher doing all these things, uh, getting these results to contribute actively to a change? Well, one idea behind the Human Economy Lab is to have this stage to propose ideas and solutions. For instance, solutions from the past that you could apply to the present for a better future. So that's the main idea. It's not so easy to voice your ideas in today's world because, as I said, you know, economists are pretty much uh, trusting the stage. But, for instance, in South Africa, we go and we talk to communities and we try to implement something called community engagement. So not only we ask people what they think about solutions that we design, but we ask them, you know, what do you need? What would make the system of Stockwell better for you? How can you see this developing in the future? So we ask all those questions and we really listen to them because you cannot really create solution for them if you don't ask their opinion. And so this idea of community engagement is you go there, you do the research, you design a model, you propose solutions, but you talk, you talk to the population you are researching on. And you come back and you listen to what they have to say about that. Because in a lot of instances, there is this huge gap between the researchers and the people who are in need of our research. I'm thinking about, you know, the poorest of us, the, the weakest, the one who don't have necessarily the means. And they feel like those academics talking on TV or publishing their research in journals, that is not accessible for a lot of people. And the idea with the Human Economy Lab is not only to design those new solutions with the communities and with the people involved, but also to communicate with them in a way that they can understand and it can be concrete. And I think that's what is missing today. The theory is important for our field when we talk to one another among academics. But people don't really care about the theories. They want a solution. They want something concrete. And that's what we're trying to offer. So you also involve the communities from the beginning? Yes, definitely. That's actually a very crucial point is when you go there, you involve them in, in the research. So in South Africa, we talk a lot with the chief of the communities. Well, not only because it's mandatory before you can do any research in Zulu land, You have to talk to the one in charge of the community. 
then they always ask us, but please do come back and talk to us with the result. We are interested and they are very much in need for better solutions. They count on us. And that's what my, my colleagues at the University of Zululand do. They work with the communities from the very start. They involve them in the project design, in designing the model and trying to find a solution. And they come back with a solution and ask what the people think. That's a good model to make sure that your research is relevant for somebody. Is there anything that you want to add about your book project? Well, the book uh, hopefully will be out next year. It's getting bigger and bigger. As I mentioned, because there is a lot of material, it's very difficult to stop. But I think it's getting there and uh, be exciting to, to have um, a book that talk about peer-to-peer -peer lending in the past. And I'm thinking of uh, having the concluding remarks on the world today. Do you want to develop the thoughts about the world today? What is going on? Oh, well, <laughs> how much time do I have? No, but I think, as I said earlier, we, we have a lot of issues with banking and finance today, mostly due to the fact that there is a lack of regulation. There is too much technology involved in terms of algorithm. And there is this problem of intermediation, too many actors between people and the banking system itself. So I think there is a lot to work on. And what strikes me is the fact that peer-to-peer -peer lending in the past in pre-industrial Europe did work fairly well. And perhaps we should borrow some of these norms and some of this system and apply this to our current banking system and see, and see what could, could happen. It was the thought after the 2008 crisis, you know, with new measures such as know your customer type of thing. But unfortunately, it has disappeared very much under the Trump presidency. The administration has taken away some of the regulation created after the, the crisis. And if we don't reverse this quickly, I think the next financial crisis could be around the corner. It's an um, urgent matter. It's urgent to take uh, action on this because at the end of the day, those who suffer the most are the ones who have the least. Yes, of course. And in some communities, that group is getting bigger. I mean, the divide is getting bigger. Yes, indeed. Wealth inequality is growing and everywhere in the world. So definitely there are more and more people who would be left out of the system. You know, if you consider today how traditional banks work, the ones who suffer the most are the ones who don't have a lot of things. They pay overdraft fees. If you spend a little bit too much and you're missing 50 euros on your account, for instance, then the overdraft fees are just uh, exorbitant. You pay too much interest rate if you have to borrow for buying a house or a car. You're the one that banks are treating poorly. And perhaps we should revise uh, some of those rules and introduce a little bit more of uh, empathy and solidarity in the system, especially from big banks who have the means to do so. So also thinking about that, it's very easy to accumulate a lot of uh, smaller loans or to buy things on credit and so on, I mean, nowadays. There are many, many actors now, thanks to 
a growing technologization of the exchange who are present and who offer loans. People don't read very much all the rules, but you have those little lines with 25% interest. This is tremendous. This is outrageously too much. You have those payday loans as well for communities who are poor and who need this to survive. There are a lot of predatory lending being done today and not less from traditional banks as well. So a little bit more regulation could help, but the problem is when regulation is implemented, sometimes it tends to exclude the poorest. So you need to take into consideration what kind of people need those kind of loans. It's usually because there is an urgent matter to be fixed and also because you don't have any other means. It's urgent not only to regulate, but also to take into consideration the population at risk. So you mentioned the Human Economy Lab. You've created this environment. You have a platform and you have different disciplines there united to, to work together. What compromises a good interdisciplinary environment where you can work together and also learn from each other? Well, the Human Economy Lab doesn't have any limits. So we take on everyone that is interested to contribute and find solutions. And I think that's actually perhaps the main recipe for a good interdisciplinary environment is to have motivated people who want to make a difference, who want to contribute. And that works the best when you can have an environment when you can talk to another and you can learn from other disciplines that you, you don't know anything about, but you feel like, well, I can learn and I can be inspired. I'm very fond of interdisciplinary environments. I really enjoy my time at SCAS. And then I went to CASBIS, the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University, which is very much an interdisciplinary area. And today I'm at the Robert Schumann Center at the EUI. It's the same idea. So you have people working on different things that you perhaps know nothing about, and that's usually the case, but you can get inspired and you, you can start a conversation where both parties can find common grounds for common projects. It's not easy, especially with the pandemic, but I, I really hope that now we can start again and meet again to exchange ideas. The best idea we can get is actually by the coffee machine. I was just going to ask how important is the physical meeting for this? Yeah, I think it's tremendously important. Sure, you know, you have all those presentations and you listen and you can get inspired and get ideas. But the true inspiration is when you really engage with people more informally, when you can actually, you know, ask questions and have a, just a conversation. Definitely by the coffee machine is where you get the most ideas. You mentioned the SCAS before. What was your experience of the multidisciplinary environment at the Collegium? It was a great experience. As a young researcher, being a fellow at SCAS was very inspiring. As I mentioned, you know, you listen to all those 
presentation from people from different fields that you know very little about. And then you can continue this conversation in the long range. So during a year, you know, you can really engage and you can really get inspired, you know, at lunch, but also informally with your colleagues. It's really like a time for reflection, for exchange in a fantastic environment where you really have this time to think and you have this this freedom to think about whatever you want. So it's usually where people get new ideas for new projects that have nothing to do with what they intended to do at first. You mentioned the time. So how important is the time factor in this multidisciplinary environment that you can meet again and again and maybe deepen your conversations? Yeah, it's definitely very important. The recurrence of meetings with people really leads you to deepen the conversation, to have this ongoing conversation for a very long period of time. So this definitely something that is very precious and it's an environment that SCAS has provided to, to make sure that you can have all the settings, all the environment ready for this conversation. What did you work on when you were here? I work on many things. That is also a luxury that you can uh, take all different kind of interests. So I work on my project on debt in pre-industrial Europe and I started to look at other countries because banking before banks, the book is going to be on pre-industrial France, but I quickly realized that this system of peer-to-peer -peer lending was in place pretty much everywhere else in Europe. So I started to think in terms of networks between people, how to recreate those networks of credit and debt. And what did he say about economic exchange, but also social exchange between people? So I've been working on Sweden. I've been looking at probate inventories and trying to reconstruct network of interaction. I've been looking at uh, Italy as well, famous uh, Catasto of Florence, which is oldest tax register compiled. So it's basically every citizen of Florence declare their wealth, but also made a list of their debt, their claims and liabilities. And then you have in 1427, this huge network that you can reconstruct and you can see how people exchange with whom. And it gives you an idea of the very heart of peer-to-peer -peer lending and what it meant in terms of social interaction. So from your time at the SCAS and um, other research environments, what did you take away with you and apply it now to the Human Economy Lab and also to your further research? Well, it took a lot, <laughs> I think. I mean, really, like the Human Economy Lab was born out of uh, this interaction with other researchers from other disciplines. And really, like, thinking, yes, all coming together, we can do great things and we can find solutions. So this definitely perhaps the best outcome of my stay in those kind of multidisciplinary environments. It became more concrete with the Human Economy Lab. Thank you very much for joining me and our listeners on SCAS Talks. Well, thank you. I'm looking forward to your book. 
And thank you for listening to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. This was the first episode in the theme Infrastructures, and I have talked to Elise Demenier-Reutersvart, Associate Professor of Economic History at Stockholm University and Pro Futura Scientia Fellow here at SCAS. Elise joined SCAS Talks from the Robert Schumann Center for Advanced Study, situated at the European University Institute in Florence, in Italy. We have talked about her current book project with the working title Banking Before Banks, Credit and Debt in Pre-Industrial France and the Human Economy Lab. Visit humaneconomylab.com to find out more about this research initiative. Are you interested in the topic of trust and credit? Then episode number 10 of SCAS Talks might be something for you. There we hear more on the topic of trust, credit and credit ratings as the basis of a modern economy from Bruce Carruthers. This fall, SCAS Talks will feature the following topics. Life sciences, infrastructures and Asia. In previous episodes, we have covered different aspects of the coronavirus pandemic, the study of languages, diversity, global governance, the brain, Africa and life in outer space. We are sure that there is something of interest for everybody, so you can always have a peek at previous episodes if you have just discovered this podcast. You can find SCAS Talks on Podbean, Spotify, iTunes and most podcast apps. You can also give us a rating or leave a review. My name is Nathalie von der Leer and I would like to thank Elise Demenier-Reutersvard once again for joining me on SCAS Talks. And thank you for listening. Bye for now.